At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey ladies, we're back in our new recording area. Yeah, it's exciting, you know, for the past, I don't know what, have we done seven, eight, nine episodes, something like that. So, yeah. We uh, we were intrepid and were recording at my dining room table. So you just never knew who was going to join us or what lovely outdoor um, lawn care sounds we were going to hear. Lots of Amazon deliveries. You get lots of Amazon deliveries. I yeah, mean, I thought I got a lot of Amazon <laughs> deliveries, but it was like Christmas time at your house every day this spring. Yeah, that's true. Well, to be fair, we were building a house, right? So there were just a lot of deliveries for the new house coming, which meant that you guys sort of at the end of our recording over there were like climbing around boxes and... It was nice. It was cozy. It was very yeah. cozy. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I also decided that your dog is spoiled beyond belief um, because that chewy box that you would get, it seemed like all the time, uh, it, it, it But it was always just food. I mean, he's just well fed. Okay, like we're ordering. Yeah, he's a big dog. He eats toys everywhere. I do have to call you out though because you said it was because you were building, but now that you're in the new house, I brought in six packages for you this afternoon. From okay, that's true. (laughs) Well, we are still furnishing the new house via Amazon. Apparently, (laughs) Amazon would like to sponsor this podcast. We are open to that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I think Melanie, are you gonna? Our producer Melanie gonna get us started on headlines or what do you got? You're watching you're watching something. Oh yeah. No, I've only just started to watch it. So next week I'll talk more about it. But the uh based on a true story, um, that new Peacock Kaylee Coco yeah. uh show, uh it, and they're the um realtor, the oh. wife and um and pregnant mom is a realtor oh. and she is obsessed with true crime and she listens to true crime podcasts and they're going through some personal and financial woes at that time and they are looking to monetize um, their lives and pay for their lives via a true crime podcast um, what? because they, uh, I, I know we could only dream, um, because they know a serial killer. Oh. <laughs> you wow. know what? I would rather not monetize this podcast <laughs> than know a serial killer <laughs> be- between the two. But um, I mean, I, I've only seen episode one, so uh, no spoilers, but he seems like a really nice friend to have if he's on your side. Oh, okay. one of those. Well, I've been doing a lot of unpacking and um, <laughs> of course you need good like TV podcast in the background. And I binged watched the shiny happy people, the docuseries oh, yeah. on the Duggars. Oh my name is on Prime. Uh-huh. I didn't I had no idea. Like I didn't know it was that wild behind the scenes. I feel like at some point in my life, I, I always think about, is, was it during maternity leave? I know I've said that before, but like wh- when have I spent time binging weird shows like that? And I, and I always was suspect about that family, but I definitely feel like they were being a, 
I don't know what's the right word, whitewashed a little bit more to, to seem palatable for uh, for American audiences because I would be like, wow, I'm just interested in how do they feed 19 mm-hmm. kids? Mm-hmm. You know, like how do they do the chores and how do- What all- are the logistics? Yeah, yeah, I was curious from a logistics point of view and they didn't really go into a deep dive in some of how they actually like, conduct themselves behind the scenes. But I mean, it makes sense that they were- um, it's problematic. Right, yeah. Well, today's episode is about a family as well. Are they problematic? Very problematic. Were there 19 children? There were not. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm excited to hear this episode. Yay! Okay, so we are back in California t- for today's episode. I think I've done a few in California, maybe at least one. The Manson family. You know, it's funny. We have done a, a, a bunch in California. You know, we should actually, like, keep a spreadsheet uh, of all that. Um and, you know, we always joke about Florida men or Florida people, it, just as a running joke. But I feel like there's a lot of good stories in California. Oh, yeah. There's a lot going on. Or there's just a lot of really good houses. Yeah, that's true. Both. both on both. Probably. So let's talk about the house since we do that every episode. The home is at 2475 Glendower Place. It's a Spanish-style home complete with terracotta roof tiles, smooth stucco, and exterior stone embellishments and arched doorways. Oh, my gosh. I love terracotta I know, roof tiles. I know. There's not enough over here. I wish there were more. Every there's, once in a while. There's some, there's some in the neighborhood. There's that, on that one street uh, around the corner, there's quite a few of the terracotta. The problem is is uh, if you get a, a good Texas hailstorm, yeah. which we are mm. apt to get, they are quite expensive and challenging to— Within just uh, a week. We've, just, we've had a bunch of hailstorms oh, within yeah. a week. yeah. Actually, we're back in Los Angeles, and more specifically, the wealthy neighborhood of Los Feliz. Melanie, I feel like you are our Los Angeles expert. Do you know that neighborhood? Well, I am definitely not an expert, but I am, uh, I like geography, and I like (laughs) maps a lot. Well, and you've actually been to Los Angeles. I have. Have you been, Elena? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I I go to LA a lot. I'm going to go next month. Um, But yeah, no, um, Los Feliz, I thought I knew where it was, so I had to Google it, and I'm like, oh, okay, I know exactly where it is. It is in the heart of the city. It is uh, just south of Griffith Park. Um, Griffith Park and the Griffith Observatory is like a quintessential spot when you go to LA. It's this beautiful, it's like very tall up on a hill. There is a telescope, um, um, like a planetarium there. But when it's, you go there also because it has the best view of the Hollywood Hillside sign. And it's actually really rugged. Everybody goes hiking there. They take their dogs for walks in the Hollywood Hills. Um, it's very, very green. And it is kind of very steep and it feels mountainy. I mean, it's not really, but it's very high hills. And this is just north of North Hollywood um, by Silver Lake. So this is kind of the heart of the city and the heart of old LA. Cool. So this is a four bed, three bath, three story mansion. It had a ballroom, full bar, glass conservatory, breakfast room, was 5,000 square feet and sat on a 0.6 acre lot. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just doing the math on the 5,000 square feet. To have a ballroom in 5,000 square feet is actually, I mean, 5,000 sounds huge, Mm -hmm. but that would take up a lot of that house. Like a ballroom, I would think is probably 2,500, 3,000 square feet. Yeah. 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 I think it was was on the third floor. Oh. So not that it that doesn't makes a seem difference, proportionate but. with the uh, the rest of the with house. the rest of yeah. the house. Yeah. Maybe it's the whole third floor. Like you know how like sometimes you see like a third floor playroom or like kind of like a loft. Mm-hmm. It was a modest ballroom. It was a modest. <laughs> ballroom. 
so the home was designed by architect Harry E. Weiner in 1925. The original owner was Harry Shoemaker, who owned Shoemaker Distributing Company, and he bought it for $20,000. Shortly after Shoemaker's death on December 6, 1932, Frederick Zelnick, a German silent, a German silent film producer slash director, purchased the home. The home was next owned by the Perelson family, who purchased it for $60,000, and it is the Perelson family that are the subjects of today's story. Dr. Harold Perelson, his wife Lillian, and their three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel, were seemingly living the dream at 2475 Glendower in 1950s Los Angeles. Harold, a first-generation American born to Eastern European parents in New York, was a successful cardiologist. He authored many research articles for various medical journals and was a professor of cardiology at the USC College of Medicine. Unfortunately, as we all know, things are not always the way they seem to be. Behind the facade of success and prominence, there was trouble. Dr. Perelson and the family had encountered several financial hardships. After filing a patent for a medical device, Perelson entered into a verbal agreement with Edward Schustack, whom he thought would help him turn his idea into a sellable product. Harold and Lillian invested a little over $24,000 into the project, only to have Schustack cut him out of the project and potential profits. I think it's important to note that there is no record of this invention ever hitting the market or making any money. What we do know is that Perelson sued Shoestack and was awarded a small amount, less than what he was suing for and less than his and Lillian's initial investment. And this was after two years of legal proceedings. So this whole debacle was a huge financial setback for the family. If you are curious, this device is an attachment for a hypodermic syringe. It's designed to inject drugs directly from the glass capsule, reducing the danger of contamination and spillage. I don't know anything about needles. I look away when I get shots. Can y'all picture that at all? Yeah, I can. Like, probably, like, one of the devices they use for diabetes drugs, maybe. Like, okay. for just the needle all-in-one. Okay. Right. Okay. My my son had to get – sorry, I've got a sidetrack for yeah. you. But my son um, – had to have like part of his toenail taken off over the weekend oh. and they were doing some injections into his foot to numb it up. And he kept wanting to watch. Speaking of like, you can't yeah. watch. <laughs> and the doctor made him lay back because she thought he was going to pass out. And he's like, mom, I just wanted to see what was happening. <laughs> so, okay. So unfortunately we did not use his device when we were at the doctor's office. Right. We don't think. I, I, we don't think so. Right. Um, I did find a picture of the patent, so we can put that on the website. Okay. Um, another financial blow that presented itself was a car accident that daughter Judy had gotten into while driving her siblings. The Perelson sued the other driver who claimed that Judy was at fault for $30,000. And while he did win this legal battle, he was once again awarded a smaller amount than what he sought, though the amount did cover medical bills that the kids had. Okay. So quick recap. The Perelsons have hit some hard times. Um, you know, financial problems, obviously, and they're just sort of having a trickle-down effect on other aspects of life. And, you know, that can take a, a real mental and emotional toll. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Because he was let down by someone he thought was a friend or business partner. They've been working together for a long time, and then his kids are in an accident. So, yeah, absolutely. $30,000 $30, in the 50s for a car accident. I mean, that's pretty serious. That sounds pretty high. I mean, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be high now, but, I mean, got to right. be really high back then. Right. Okay, so here we are the night of December 6, 1959, at around 5 a.m., and for lack of better phrasing, all hell is about to break loose. <laughs> Lillian Perelson was sleeping in the couple's second-floor primary suite. Harold stood over her and struck her once in the head with a ball-peen hammer. After delivering the single blow to the head, he left her there to asphyxiate, drowning in her own blood. 
He then went to 18-year-old daughter Judy's room. He once again raised the hammer to strike his daughter in the same way that he had done to his wife, but his aim was off, and she received a devastating but slighter blow than her mom had received. Judy, now awake, bleeding, but alert enough to scream. She screamed so loudly that she woke the neighbors, screaming, don't kill me, repeatedly. Her father told her to lay still and keep quiet. The younger siblings, Debbie, 11, and Joel, 13, were awakened by Judy's screams and ran to her room to see what was going on. Harold told them to go back to bed and that it was all a nightmare. Fortunately, Debbie and Joel did not go back to bed and instead made their way out of the house physically unharmed. Meanwhile, Judy was able to get away from her father and run downstairs, down the outside steps into a neighbor's home, leaving a trail of blood the whole way. Harold Perelson then took two doses of Nembutal and 31 white pills believed to be codeine or some type of tranquilizer. He laid down on the floor beside Judy's bed and was dead by the time the ambulance arrived. Notably, found beside his dead body was a ball-peen hammer and a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy. This is what the passage was that was open to. The book was open to. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward path had been lost. Um, that's really creepy. That's that gives me a little bit of chills. Yeah, seriously. It's really creepy. Well, and so premeditated, right? Like, not only did he plan the crime, but then he had this, like, staging to talk about why he did the crime. Or he had the book open, or he was reading that prior to committing the crime, and then oh, went so and laid down. That's how I maybe, like, he was reading it, and then he committed the crime, where right. I'm thinking he committed the crime and, like, opened right. it up yeah. to that. To right. And I don't know which one. That's just what I had in my head, that the way that it would have happened. We both look at Melanie. You have something to say? Yeah, no, I, I don't have anything good to say. I'm just kind of picturing it. No, it's very uh, morbid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was later learned that Dr. Perelson had several suicide attempts. The family referred to these events as coronaries, leading people at the time to think he had some sort of medical condition. And it's reported that Lillian was planning on having him involuntarily committed and that Harold had found out about this. Okay, well, I think that brings up a whole other conversation mm -hmm. just about mental health and I mean, I feel like today we're very open about mental health and more open, you know, not more. as much as we need to be, but agreed. Yeah, there, yeah, but certainly in the 1950s, I mean, oh, that was, yeah. you know, I think they were still telling women that they had what um, they didn't call it anxiety. What did they call it, Melanie? Like nerves, or mm. I, I'm sorry, I should have known what I was going to say before I started talking here. But certainly in the 1950s, you know, that was a very kept quiet, mm. not talked about. You right. know, and, and really not understood. I think today we understand that it is a serious medical condition and not just. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it was hard for him to being a doctor, physician, and distinguished and at the top of his career. Yeah, absolutely. And then to the thought of being involuntary committed. I'm sad. I mean, the whole thing's sad. But did y'all notice anything about the dates I mentioned above? No, I was just listening to your beautiful storytelling. <laughs> There's a weird coincidence. The original owner of the home, Harry Shoemaker, died on December 6th. And Dr. Harold Perelson committed the murder, attempted murder, and suicide on December 6th. Hmm. Do you think he knew that? Or do you think it was just... No. I couldn't tell this It feels like a big coincidence. Just yeah. still creepy. Creepy. Well, I mean, isn't this house Everything about supposed it. to be a it's creepy house? It's going to get more house? creepy. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. So... Um, after the events of December 6, 1959, the, hold the home was sold at auction to Emily and Julian Enriquez in 1969. 
As you may or may not know, when a home is sold at auction like this, you're also purchasing everything that is in the house. So the Enriquez family were now the owners of not only the home, but of all the Perelson's belongings. They kept the belongings there and untouched. Apparently, they never moved in and instead used the home as a storage facility and time capsule. Neighbors are said to have seen the couple come to drop boxes off, but never staying overnight. I couldn't have found out how much they purchased the home for, but I'm sure it was pretty expensive storage facility. I feel like this is a, like, quote-unquote storage facility. I'm feeling like this is an Ozark money laundering scheme. I mean, this seems, like, very shady because, I mean, you look at pictures. This is a beautiful house in a very high-rent neighborhood. Why would you Maybe they were buy— like this gorgeous house, even yet with a, a troubled, you know, history to use as a storage. But I wanted to touch on one of the things mm-hmm. that you mentioned. So they, so the house still has the things from the Pearlson yes. family in yes. it. Yes. So it had, it had Life magazines. Um, Judy had a, there's a picture online. Judy had a, like a nameplate on her light switch from her room. That was still there. Like it's just a bunch of random so it, it's like the family had just walked away. and Basically. It, and then yet this other family is also using it to store stuff. Exactly. Well, and I think that brings up a good point about auctions. Like you said, like if you, if you didn't know, you sort of get the house and whatever's there. Mm-hmm. And with auctions, you typically don't get time to do any sort of due diligence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're just buying a regular home and doing inspections. You're getting it sort of... I mean, maybe it's not sight unseen. You've seen the house, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you really don't get to go in and right. check well, it out. So y'all think maybe some illegal activity is happening. I feel like something happened to them and then they didn't want to move in. Like maybe oh. they felt creepy or... Well, have either of you ever um, bought or helped anyone buy a home at auction? I have not. I haven't. I just think from a due diligence standpoint, it's really hard. I think you need to... You know, either be a contractor or being in the the remodel business where you can sort of walk through and, you know, price stuff out and just assume if you have to redo electrical and plumbing, it's going to cost X, Y, or Z. It's really not for your average home buyer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound like something that you would even really need a realtor for. No, no, you you can absolutely do it yourself. It's just, you know, buyer beware. Mm -hmm, Right. So after Emily and Julian died, the home was left to their son, Rudy, in 1994. Rudy also Wait a second. Uh-oh. Sorry, I got to keep interrupting oh, yeah. you. So the death it, uh, was in like 59. It was sold at auction like a year or so later. Uh, 69. Okay. Okay. 69. Mm-hmm. So then for 20 plus years, it's a... Storage facility. I can tell you there's got to be some cheaper storage facility. <laughs> right. I know. The taxes alone. Um, yeah. So, so he inherited it. In 1994. So he also didn't live there and continued to use the home as a storage site. Rudy, like his parents, didn't change anything, including decor in the home, leaving leaving it as it was in December 1959. Rudy is quoted as saying to the LA Times in 2006, I don't want to live there or even stay there. He was apparently not afraid of the home. He had just no desire to inhabit the dilapidated home. Rudy died in 2015, and in 2016, it hit the market with an asking price of $2.7 million. Wow. Okay, so let's just kind of stop here for a second. Mm -hmm. And there was this gruesome murder um, in 1959. And then we're talking up until 2016, Mm -hmm. this house was kept in basically the exact same condition. Right. 
as the murderer, other than the this one family used it like a their own personal storage unit. I don't know if they're hoarders, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, see, that's to me is the like most interesting part of the story here. Um, you know, as you were talking, you know, I'm frantically googling, um, and I'm on Atlas Obscura, one of my favorite websites. Uh, shout out to the Atlas Obscura books. I have. All of them as coffee table books. Um, But they have this quote here. What remains an even larger mystery is why the current owner has left the scene of the crime almost exactly as it was in 1959. So they didn't clear out the house. They bought it with all the stuff in it. Mm -hmm. There's like their 1950s style TV set in the living room. There's dust over all the people's items. I mean, did you did you read something about a Christmas tree? Maybe I did. I saw that there was a the Christmas tree with the wrapped presents. I wasn't sure if that was. There were some conflicting reports that that potentially didn't belong to them because they might have been Jewish. I, I wasn't really sure, but yeah, I saw that. Oh, well, well, and also it's curious to me if they were using this house for storage. I, you know, I have a couple of storage units because we stage houses before we list them, and like the first thing you do is clear everything out and put up some shelves. And, like, make the most of your space. So I'm still not sure about this whole quote-unquote storage thing, but also you're right. Like, why did they leave the stuff there? Elena, you have a theory. I think they went and something spooked them. And, and they, they were just like, we're They were just gonna. like, we're not, this is no. There's, okay, I, I refuse. why didn't they sell it? Oh, that's I mean, true. Like, it's now at $2.7 million at this point in time, even though it's uh, dilapidated. I mean, this is in a high-value location. Like, it seems like there's a lot of things that they could have done um, differently. And did I read that he would go to the house, though, because he kept his cats there? Mm-hmm. The son or the, the father? The son. The son. Who well, inherited the house and then who more recently died. Yeah. He kept his cats there that he would go... I can't believe that the Neighborhood Association, I mean, this is like a kind of a historic area, very high rent, that they were not like up in arms calling code compliance every which way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, but I mean, as long as they're mowing the yard and not letting the roof fall in, I mean, what code compliance? Well, when you take a look at this house, it oh. is on a like a big hill. I mean, it's a very steep kind of location. And I know in LA and in the surrounding areas, they're always really concerned about the houses that are on hills that aren't, because if it starts to fall down, it'll hit the next house on the hill. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I, I don't know. Very interesting story. Okay. Well, Elena, tell us what happened to it. Okay. Well, so it hit the market in 2016. It was sold to Lisa Bloom and her husband for $2,289,500. You might recognize that name. Bloom is an L.A. attorney best known for her appearances on court TV, being the daughter of Gloria Allred and for representing Harvey Weinstein. Wait, I'm sorry. Hold on. Yeah. Gloria Allred's daughter represents Harvey That's Weinstein? That's true. Yes. Okay. <laughs> just clarifying. We'll just leave that right there. <laughs> When asked if she had any qualms about purchasing the famed murder house, Bloom stated, I don't really believe in ghosts and spooky spirits. The house didn't do anything wrong. The house is innocent. I thought that was a nice sentiment to say about a home. I, I mean, I believe in attachment, so I don't think that that's true, but I feel like that's a really sweet thing to think the home was innocent. I mean, I remember thinking, and maybe I've brought this up before, but the first house we bought, like the couple was going through a nasty divorce. Mm. And I remember thinking like, 
I don't want that bad feeling, right. but also the house deserves to be happy. Right. Yeah. But we all know I'm a little crazy. So, okay, keep going. So Bloom and her husband began work on the home, taking it down to the studs upon their 2016 purchase. However, the unfinished home suddenly hit the market again in May of 2019 for $3.5 million. I know you're thinking something spooked them. I mean, that's what you're thinking. <laughs> that's, sure. what, that's what I thought. But supposedly they weren't. They were spooked only by red tape. They were improving it by more than 50%. And that, that means that they would have had to bring the whole home up to code. Bloom stated this would mean that they would have to tear down the home, regrade the lot, and rebuild. Um, can we file this under things to find out before you spend $2 million on a home? Right. Exactly what I yeah. thought. That's a like, big deal. Yeah, their realtor should have helped them do a little yeah. due diligence on that. Hopefully they had a realtor. They're, they're lawyers. Maybe they're like, oh, we don't oh. need a realtor. I mean, I'm married to a lawyer, so well, I love true. them, but sometimes they do <laughs> But still, that. right. So, yeah, the home was listed at $3.5 million, and it sold in 2020 for $2,350. So less than what, wait, a little bit over. They lost money on that big they time. They definitely lost big money Big time lost money on that. Real estate developer Lux Manor Custom Home Builders purchased the home. They couldn't find much information on what is going on there now with the home or what the plans are. Do we need to so, this? Melanie, that makes me think you were saying a lot about the code compliance and it being on a hill. Um, I, we're in Texas. We don't really have mountains. I have like sort of a... You're on a little incline. I'm on a little incline. <laughs> And just the amount to like do retaining walls and maintain that is a little overwhelming sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I can't even imagine on the side of the hill right. what a construction project like this would cost. Right. And then, you know, not only doing the project, but getting the vendors and resources there is also a little mm -hmm. bit challenging when you can't just drive straight in and have a truck park you know, right mm -hmm. in front of where it needs to be, then mm -hmm. your carting supplies. I mean, the logistics the logistics get a little challenging right. for sure. Right. Again, I feel like they would have thought of that before they, they purchased the home. It's just weird. Well, and, you know, I can see where you go in and you think, okay, we're going to come in, we're going to remodel the kitchen, we're going to, you know, maybe add this, that, or the other, and then you get an architect and designer involved and they – show you this dream plan, and you're like, oh, yeah, let's do that. You sound like you're speaking from experience. I mean, maybe a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you have, you know, um, a bigger project than you intended. Right. But right. apparently, make note, if you're doing something in California and you want to improve more than 50% of it, you have to bring it up to code, which totally makes sense. Yeah, for sure. For and if sure. you're going to do a big enough project like that, you should be redoing the plumbing and electrical anyway. Absolutely. So I want to ask you the question that we ask on every episode, but before I do that, I want to tell you that in California, you are only required to disclose a murder in the home for three years from the date an offer to purchase the home is made. So it's different here, but I thought that was interesting. So before, yeah. so think, think about that, and it might not make a difference in this because it's such a famous home, mm -hmm. um, but would you list it, buy it, or live in it? Yes, I would list it. For sure. Because you would list anything. Just about. Um, <laughs> and I'll work hard for y'all, I promise. Uh, so, well, Alana, um, would I buy it or live in it? I mean, right now it's a construction zone. So, I, I, it sounds really cool. At this point, like if I had the money and I was wanting to do a big project in LA, that might be fun. I'm a little project scared at the moment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I wasn't in that position, yeah, I think so. 
What about you, Alana? I think you're a no all the way around. I mean, I think I, there's something weird going on in that house. I really feel like these people didn't live there because something happened. I feel like she probably sold it because something happened. That's just my feeling on it. So I would not live there. We know you don't like the bad juju. I don't like that. I yeah. don't like that. Yeah. There's stuff. Yeah. Um, I would probably list it just because it'd be cool to say I, mean, I listed two and a half million dollar home. You're gonna get you're, you're gonna go after your commission. Yeah, why not? Um, but yeah, would not live there. Yeah, Melanie. I mean, you're the LA buff because your sister lives there, right? Like, yeah, both my brother and sister live. Okay. There. Um, sorry, Melanie's brother. Just met your sister. He lives in the valley. Okay. <laughs> um, would you he lives well, by the Kardashians? That's oh. my yeah. Very famous. <laughs> that, that's the only thing I know about his area, but it's very nice. <laughs> um, okay, so would you live there? I think so. Um, it, my my reservation with this is, is the fact that this is sort of a, kind of like the other location, um, the Manson family. This is a well-known mm-hmm. location, and but this one's pretty accessible. I mean— um, it's very, like, if you're going to go to the Hollywood sign or you go to the Griffith Observatory, this is very close to it. And from my quick Google search, which means I'm now an expert, um, is that it is, like, been famous for, like, intruders over the years, um, you know, drunk teenagers, people um, before the whole pot, true crime podcast were popular, um, but, you know, would like to go look at murder houses. So I don't know if I'd like that kind of like that notoriety. Um, it's not gated. So it's something that somebody would be coming up all the time, mm-hmm. like trying to take pictures of. I don't know. That that part of it would be like, I wouldn't like as much. Right. Yeah. Tour buses, big loads of tourists. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can see that. You might have changed my mind about whether or not I would live there. But I think because of what you said. You know, just from that perspective, being so close to it that everybody's taking a picture outside of the house, I think that would be kind of annoying. Um, but at the same time, if someone wants to give it to me and <laughs> give a, a limitless budget to for the renovations that it would would be required, sure, I'll live there. I like it. I like it. Hey, that was fun. All right. Well, um, I hope that the sound quality was good in our first episode in our new studio. And uh, we're excited to bring you guys a lot more. We've got some really great stories on tap um, and we're excited to record them for you. Do you want to give a teaser for next week? Oh, next week's is going to be so good. You need to mark your calendars, <laughs> put a timer on your phone, you know, because we release on Thursdays now. So every Thursday you can uh, catch a new episode. This one's iconic and we may not get through it in one episode. It might be two. So we'll yeah. see. Okay. If you're an architecture buff, you definitely want to listen to this one. Yeah, it's going to be a good right. one. Thanks, Give a little y'all. teaser. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.